All right, you guys. Well, praise the Lord. We have breath in our lungs and bodies that are functioning well enough for us to be here tonight and to open up His Word. So let's go ahead and do that. If you haven't already, since you know where we are, we're going to be in Revelation 3. But that's where I'm asking you to open up to tonight, Revelation chapter 3. While you do that, let me remind you that we are continuing this section from last week. Uh, we began it last week. This is the address to the church in Laodicea. Last week I gave some introductory comments, but then we spent the bulk of our time just focusing on verse 14. And so this evening we're going to do just a little bit of recap so that we can understand it all correctly, and then we'll get into the rest of the text as well. Too. We're going to finish chapter 3 today, yes. So we're going to finish the address to the church in Laodicea today. That's the plan, at least. So let's read the text. And then we'll pray, asking God's blessing on our time in his, in his word. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 14 in chapter 3 of Revelation says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Before, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would have it to be authoritative in our life, that you would grant us belief of it, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding so that these aren't just mere words like any other book, Lord, but that we would understand that they are inspired by you and they are inerrant and infallible. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause me to teach it rightly and that you would help us to only believe what is true and what is right, for we desire to know you through Christ, and Christ is the living word. So we pray um, all these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so first, just a little bit of recap before we move on to verse 15. Uh, This congregation in Laodicea has much in common with evangelical congregations in our day. Sadly, that is the case. For different but related reasons, actually. Uh, If you remember last week, I had mentioned that there is a method of evangelism that is popular in our culture today that actually takes a verse from this passage out of context. Verse 20, which is taken to mean that Jesus is standing at the door to a lost person's heart, and all they need to do is pray this prayer, and then they will be saved after that. They're free from eternal condemnation if they just do that little easy thing. Well, Jesus certainly is the way to be free from condemnation because of his sinless life and then his substitutionary death upon the cross for all the elect. But in order for a person to be saved, in other words, in order for a person to have freedom from condemnation personally, they need to have the gospel proclaimed to them through the written word or through the preached word. Not just part of the gospel, but the the true gospel. Not a modified gospel, but the true gospel. And there is 
regeneration involved, involved with that as well, which is a work of the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit alone. And when this work of the Lord comes with the proclamation of the gospel, a person is born again. They, they desire to love the Lord God, and they repent and have faith in Him, and they are converted. That is how a true believer is made, made by God. And it, I mean, that's, that's just generally the principle or the rule. I mean, it could happen in the case that you get little parts of the gospel here and there and over your course of life, but then at some point it all makes sense to you altogether, and you receive Christ at that point as well. But it's something that's accomplished by the Lord in cooperation with the gospel. Uh, the easy believism, though, which is what I was mentioning last week, uh, when a person is converted from that and not the work of the Lord, it creates what we would call like a nominal Christian, a Christian by name only, which is actually then not a real Christian. Or if a person actually does get saved, even through that easy believism type of context, uh, because God is sovereign and he's free to work in any situation that he so desires, and parts of the gospel were probably contained in that easy believism presentation, that person ends up being in a state of immaturity usually for quite a long while. And then all kinds of other issues arrive and confusion in the church too, all because of this process of easy believism, which again, I won't get into a whole bunch of detail, but we went over that last week. Most notably, uh, church communities end up being confused by law and gospel, where this easy believism method is championed. And what happens then is people think that our good deeds contribute to our favor to God and that a life of some means or a life of some wealth, in other words, means that it's obvious that God's favor is upon us or them. And from there, the idea is just that you use Christian ethics uh, and try to be a better person. And you just give your best efforts from there. Like I said last week, easy believism, it's, it's a plague on the church. It's a dissertation. Dis- of the gospel, and it makes it no gospel then. And that's what you have going on here in Laodicea. It didn't come by the way of easy believism, but the end result of easy believism, which we're dealing with in our culture today, is the same problem that Laodicea has before them, where the Lord describes them as lukewarm, and we'll be more precise with that, uh, that term in just a moment. And so Jesus reveals himself to the congregation as the Amen. Not just amen like how we normally say it in a sentence, but it's a title. He's the amen. And it means to convey what is also said in verse 14, which emphasizes the fact that it says it twice, but it means to convey the idea that he's faithful and true. And he's also the faithful and true witness, which is what Laodicea needs because their witness right now is garbage. Their witness is trash. Their witness is in need of clarity and gospel light and rebuke. Their witness, their works before the world, need to be more like Christ. Because Jesus is the beginning of the creation, as we read, um, he's the firstborn from the dead, the idea is simply that in Christ's resurrection from the dead, the new creation has already begun. It's not completed. The Jews in that era mistakenly thought it would be, but this new heaven and new earth, the new creation exists, and it's already not yet tension. Uh, we've talked about that before. It's going to exist in this present way until Christ comes again. And last week, remember, we went to that passage in Isaiah 58, which talked about Jesus being the firstborn, the beginning of the new creation in his resurrection. So through Christ's conquest of the grave, and even now, God is removing the curse by breaking the power of sin and death through Christ's sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection. And the rest of this section now, so that's verse 14, the rest of this section here, 15 through the end of the chapter, follows the familiar, similar pattern as to the other 
uh, addresses to the churches that we've already covered. So first there's a critique in verse 15 to 17, and then there's this grace-filled solution in 18 to 19, and then it closes with gospel promises, so 20 to 22. So first, the critique. Being that Jesus is the faithful and true witness who sees all and knows his churches, remember he walks among the lampstands, the lampstands are the seven churches, he knows their works, that means. He knows their deeds, in other words. He knows how they are living their life in light of the profession of faith that they've made. And look at what he says about them. He says, and if you remember too, and this is verse four or 15, if you remember from last week, I had mentioned the physical landscape or the history of Laodicea. And so if you remember that stuff, Jesus now says to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So we hear that, and that's probably not abundantly clear as to what is meant by that, but for the Laodiceans, who are familiar with their water supply issues and how they would receive lukewarm, dirty water, they would have understood immediately what Jesus is talking about. They are just like the water that they hate. They're just like the water that prevented them from growing and prospering further as a city. They are neither hot nor cold. Remember from last week, Laodicea didn't have its own water supply. And there was warm water to its north, there was cold water to its south, but they didn't have their own water supply, and water was sent through an aqueduct from the north to them. By the time it got to them, it was lukewarm and dirty and gross. They are neither hot or cold. And hot or cold would be good in this, but they aren't either. And yet, they think of themselves as prosperous. They see themselves as having already arrived in physical and spiritual gifts and favor. They are rich in their own eyes, and they don't need any help, they think. They are like the harlot in Revelation 18 who has enriched the world's merchants with their wealth all, while, all the while seducing them to unbelief. And they are blind to it all. And so Jesus tells them they are neither hot nor cold. They are like nasty Laodicea water. And so in this case, both hot and cold are good options. Hot water, like the hot water from Hierapolis to the north, the, the source of Laodicea's water, but in its pristine condition, it had a medicinal value. If they were hot, if Laodicea was hot, then the gospel would be going forth in power with strength to reconcile man and God based on faith in the work of Christ. And a similar thing with them being cold, the cold water in Colossae to their south was refreshing and it was good to drink. And the church, if, if they were cold, as it were, with this analogy, then the gospel would be like a refreshing spring a good thing, a source of joy and delight, because their assurance would solely rest upon the merits of Christ. And so to be, quote, lukewarm here, is to show that they've abandoned the gospel and the hope that it brings. That's, that's what Jesus is telling them by calling them lukewarm, that they've abandoned the gospel and the hope that it brings. Lukewarm here is, is like a metaphor for compromising with the spirit of the age, with, with the world, in other words, with the world's means in order to obtain material success, rather than trying to seek and please God by remaining faithful to the true gospel, which, again, in this case, would be described as either hot or cold. And so it's easy to know what Jesus is referring to here next. If you've ever picked up a soda or something like that, thinking it's yours, but it turns out to be like some room temperature nastiness, uh, you know what this is like. Verse 16 says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Oh, if it's gross, it's nasty, yeah. Spit it on the floor? I'm a man. 
That's right. Okay, so notice what the Lord is saying here, though. He's not going to tolerate forever a complacency toward heavenly things, toward um, spiritual responsibilities. If a church is going to be complacent with their testimony and the gospel and instead show interest in the world and what, what it thinks is important, the Lord will at some point spit them out of his mouth. Complacency means to not really care about it, to not really care about its growth, to not really care about being true to it. And when a church is like that, it leaves a bitter and disgusting taste in the Lord's mouth if we're sticking with this example here. And so unless the congregation repents, unless they take up the grace-filled solution offered in the coming verses here, Jesus himself will break fellowship with them. You see, he's telling them this, he's warning them this way to give them an opportunity to repent. That is what the warnings in Scripture are meant to do. God perseveres and he preserves his true church through warnings like this. And this compromised church is in a bad place. I mean, they think they have it all together, but they don't. And so any converts that are being made are being subjected to this deranged and this damaged gospel. The world may even think they're a successful church, but the Lord knows the reality. This is a fellowship that has grown wide, but not very deep. A Puritan Thomas Manton said, the church is like a river. If it gets wider instead of deeper, it will lose its power. And that's kind of like what you have happening here with this congregation in Laodicea. That's the danger here. This church has lost its power because it's, it's lost the gospel, essentially. They're neither hot or cold. And the power that a church needs is the power that comes with the gospel of Christ. Not, it's not in their perceived favor. It's not, in their, it's not in one's ability to do good works. And this church is self-deceived. They're in danger of judgment. And because they have outward wealth and success, which they think means they are blessed by God, they don't realize the danger they're in. It's like churches today that say, well, look how many people we have coming to our congregation. Look how many services we have. Look how many uh, different satellite campuses we have. Uh, we have six different ca- services. We have three different satellite campuses. Uh, we baptized 45 people today. You know, our offering is way above budget. And yet, uh, they don't have the gospel. The emphasis is on people being good for the sake of being good, since being good is better than being bad, rather than the glory of God and the obedience as the response to faith. The baptized people aren't held accountable, really. And from a world standpoint, they think all is well. But the reality is a church like that is in danger. And so Jesus points out this hypocrisy in verse 17. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So they're completely self-deceived. Right? They think that they are rich and, pros- and prosperous, but the exact opposite is true. They're totally unaware of their true condition, it would seem. Their success and their wealth has blinded them. They don't even think they need anything. Imagine I, what their prayer life must have been like. D- dismal, I would think. But since they're, they're rich and prospering, this makes them think that God is blessing them. And that is an old way that Satan actually operates. It's one of our great roadblocks to evangelism even now today. Everyone lives as if there isn't an eternity and having good things right now is all that matters. And if they have good things now, well then people think that they must be right with God. They don't worry about being right with God. 
Well, the way that our Lord Jesus describes the situation here has many close parallels to the way that God's people throughout the Old Covenant thought. Even right up to when the New Covenant was going to be revealed and ratified in the blood of Christ, this sort of mentality where you think that, oh, if I'm rich, if I'm doing well, if I'm prospering, then I must have God's favor, was a, a way that people mistakenly thought. Think of the rich young ruler and the response that his disciples gave after he turned away. You can turn with me to Matthew 19. I just We just went over rich, rich young ruler last Sunday evening, so I won't go over everything here. But the rich young ruler is this prominent young man who is very outwardly religious. He keeps the law. He's obedient. He does. He keeps the commandments in his own mind, at least. He's naive. And he runs up to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And then Jesus asks him, all these, the second table of the law, have you lied? Have you stole? Have you cheated? Any of those things? And he says, no, I've done none of those. And then he ends up telling this young man to um, sell all of his riches and follow him. And it shows that this rich young ruler is actually covetousness. He has an idol in his heart. He thinks that having wealth is the most important thing. He doesn't want to give that up. He doesn't want to give up his riches to follow Jesus. Not that you have to give up your riches to follow Jesus, but for this young man, it was an idol in his life. And so right after that whole exchange, the, the young guy goes away, and the disciples are shook. They're like, well, how, what does this mean? How does this happen? And so look at Matthew 19, verse 23. There we read, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a, will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now why? Right? Why would it be hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? I mean, being rich, for we know, doesn't get you in heaven. Being poor doesn't prevent you from getting into heaven. But with riches, what happens is sometimes it leads to idols in, in people's hearts. People are, are more married to their riches than they are to the Lord. The Lord Jesus says you can't serve love or you can't serve money and God. You can't have two masters. And for some people who are very, very wealthy, being rich is their God. It is their master. But then he says again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And the reason they're astonished, the, re the reason they're surprised is because, again, there is this underlying notion that if you are wealthy, well, then you're blessed by God. And that you must have God's favor. And, and so, of course, this person is saved. Look how God is treating him here now. But Jesus' point is, no, no, no. That's not what makes, that's not how you know if someone is saved. And then he gives the answer. Verse 26, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Right? Emphasizing the reality that we are saved by God and the works that he does. And just because a person is rich doesn't mean that they are actually saved, it might even be a stumbling block unto them. So here's the thing. You could be beyond wealthy. You could even have a form of godliness. A, you could even have a general propensity to do good works, to keep the law of God outwardly, at least. But if the gospel is neglected in your life, then you're lost. If the source of your justification is not Christ alone, if you somehow are disillusioned into believing that you're prosperous by the world's standards and you're basing your assurance on that, then God is in fact not pleased with you because your hope has to be in Christ. If Christ is lost, then we are lost. And no amount of money or good works will ever cover up our sins. 
what it tends to do, what money tends to do, and an abundance of good works apart from faith, is they blind us to our sins, and then we lack repentance because of that. But the Lord, of course, sees. Think of uh, President Trump, even. As far as presidents go, (laughs) as far as presidents go, not a bad president, but as a Christian, a train wreck. Uh, He even said at one point that he doesn't have to repent. I don't know if you remember him saying that. Perhaps it's something he thinks because of his wealth. I'm not sure. I'm saying he's a horrible Christian. You're saying he's not a Christian, right? I'm saying if he is. I mean, I, I ultimately can't know. But I'm saying a, a Christian knows they have to repent. And he said, I don't have to repent. So that doesn't seem, that's not the type of thing a Christian would say. So, and what's the reason for that? I mean, Donald Trump is extremely wealthy. Perhaps, you know, it's under that same sort of a mistake where he thinks that he must be blessed by God. He doesn't have anything to repent for because look how favored he is. Look how well off he is. I'm not sure. Anyways, think of the words of Agur, the son of Jekka, in Proverbs 30. This is verse 8 through 9. The kind of starts in the middle, actually, so I'll just start from there. It says, I'll start from the beginning at verse 8. He says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Then he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, you see what he's saying there, right? Don't let me be so rich that I forget you, and also at the same time, don't let me be so poor that I have to steal and break the law of God. He, he's, he's praying for contentment. He's praying to be satisfied with what the Lord has given to him, and he, he doesn't want to be distracted by the things of the world. There's wisdom in that. Now, it's not that having wealth makes you reprobate, but it could be a reason that a person is self-deceived. And the point that Jesus is making here to the church in Laodicea, which these people are wealthy, they're rich, they're a banker's community, if you remember, they think they're well-off because they're rich, and Jesus is like, no, you're absolutely not well-off. You think you're well-off, but you're so far from being well-off. The church in Laodicea boasts of its wealth, thinking that its money will cover up its sins. Jesus, however, exposes the truth. The church is not rich and without need. It is, in fact, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And what's worse is the fact that these members of this church, they don't have the slightest clue about their true condition. These people have compromised with the spirit of the age to the point where they are blind to their true condition. And think of those descriptions from the Lord. Is not the gospel the solution to every one of those five things that he mentions about them? Let's think of them all, okay? He's telling them that they need to remember the gospel, which declares they are no longer wretched, but righteous in the Lord. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Apart from Christ, a person is wretched. United to Christ, a person is righteous because of Christ and his righteousness. And then because of the gospel, we're not pitiful, but God considers us to be beloved saints. Romans 1.7, to all those, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we are pitiable. We should be pitied. Like this poor person who's going about their life apart from the covenants and the grace and the love of God. But when you're united to Christ, you're loved by God, loved by God in such a way that God considers you his son or his daughter. And you're a saint, you're sanctified, you're set apart, and you have grace and peace with God and from God. And then, thirdly, because of the gospel, we're not poor. 
but we have all that we have, all that we need in Christ, including a place in glory with God even. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I talked about this last Sunday evening, but it is better to be poor monetarily and rich in grace than it is to be rich according to the world standards and poor in grace. Because this existence right now isn't going to last forever. And money isn't the actual key to happiness and peace and joy. Knowing Christ is. Then, fourthly, neither are we said to be blind when the gospel gets a hold of us. This is Acts 26.18, and the Apostle Paul is speaking about the ministry of the gospel commissioned to him by Jesus. Paul is talking to uh, 26, it might be Caesar, or it might be Festus, like one of the governors, and, um, or it might have been Caesar. And he's giving his testimony, he's telling about when he was saved, and Jesus told, gave this ministry to the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 18, it's to open up their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the, the Christian, the person who's united Christ, is not blind to the truth of God. They have their eyes opened up. But the person who's a, not united Christ, the person who's in their sins and lost, they're appropriately called blind. And then lastly, the charge of being naked. This is referring to the shame of nakedness that was realized once humanity was fallen in the garden. Remember what happened there? Adam and Eve are naked. They're fulfilling the, the great, um, not the great commission, but they're fulfilling the cultural mandate or the garden mandate, and they're living and they're in fellowship with the Lord God. And then sin enters in, and they realize at that moment that they don't have any clothes on, and they feel shame. And so they try to make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. <laughs> yeah, they try to make for themselves clothes out of fig leaves, but then God, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not that he can't find them, but he engages with them in such a way to expose their hearts that are wandering from him. And when he calls out to them, and he says, you know, and they, they, obviously the fact that they're naked and now wearing fig leaves is apparent, he makes them actual clothes. He sacrifices an animal pointing to the gospel. And so this idea of nakedness is caught up in that. Uh, the point that we need to know that even in God's making clothes for them is that he's pointing forward to the gospel of Christ in which the New Testament tells us we have to put on Christ. Too. We have to be clothed with Christ and his righteousness. We read about it to the address in Sardis as well, and that in the gospel, we aren't to be thought of as naked and shamed before the Lord. But as 3 verse 5 says, in Revelation 3 5, so the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and they will never blot out his name from the book of life. What does the white symbolize? Purity, holiness. Christ's righteousness, right? So we're not naked apart when we are united to Christ, but apart from Christ, without the gospel, then it's like we're naked. He's making these theological points. So the gospel is their hope. Jesus, in his kindness, is pointing them back to it. Yes, in the eyes of the world, they've prospered greatly, but the economic gains and, and well-being this compromise has produced obscures the fact that... what. What was lost in its presence is the real treasure. It was the gospel. And not having the gospel means that, in Christ's eyes, the, the church is, is nothing. And it is with this wretched condition in mind 
that in verse 18, Jesus now instructs them how to rectify their problem. This is the solution he begins to offer. And so he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may be clo- that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and a salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So being wretched, pitiful, poor, and naked, the remedy that Christ describes is for this church something that must have come as a shock to them. They must come to their senses and give up trusting in their own material prosperity and their ultimate unworthiness. They need to look to Christ, whose ability is to be able to supply them with what they actually need. It's Christ and his provision is inexhaustible. You see the solution he gives. It lines up with the critique even. The gold refined by fire refers to the righteousness as opposed to being wretched. And the rest is obvious, even in that verse. Covering your shameful nakedness, uh, white clothes, um, poor, but now now you're rich, uh, something for your eyes because they were blind. So it, you know that the gospel being the answer there. This is true prosperity for the church, living in these last days, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. It, it's, it's the same thing that is depicted by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.1, where the prophet writes, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk and money without cost. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Come buy wine, milk, honey, and eat with no money. In other words, come t- buy gold. That doesn't it, sound... But that's what must happen. That's what must happen, friends. All of the, the point being is that we, we buy it through the faith that God gives to us. It's not something that we have in, in ourselves to obtain. It, it is what God has for us. In Christ are found all of the riches and treasures of heaven. And this treasure is freely offered to us if we humbly receive it with the empty hands of faith. We can't earn it. We, can't, we don't deserve it. But God, in the riches of his kindness, grants it to us through the faith that he supplies to us. And we receive it gladly because at that moment we see how good it is and how much it is that we need it. And this method of correcting the church this way by warning them like this is part of his solution to their problem. This is the means by which he is sanctifying those who are truly his. And verse 19 and this is why I'm convinced that many commentators are in error to see that there is no commendation to this congregation. Granted, um, he doesn't praise them for anything that they do. But notice verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This is a church that Christ Jesus indeed is the head of. Her lampstand is not put out, not yet. They're objects of his love. He is reproving and disciplining them here. Proverbs 3.12, The Lord corrects everyone that he loves, just as a parent corrects a child they dearly love. The author to the letter in Hebrews elaborates on this. Discipline from the Lord, correction and warning from the Lord, is not his wrath and condemnation. It's an aspect of his covenant love. And they are being instructed here to be zealous, to leave behind all complacency, to leave behind all laziness, and repent. This is an address to a church, which certainly would have lost and deceived people among them, but there are truly saved people here as well. 
And this warning from the Lord is the means by which the Lord's saints will turn from their sins and remember the gospel and rest in it. But God doesn't discipline those who aren't his children. He only disciplines those who are his children. He only and discipline is an act of love. And this, that this is true can be seen in the very next verse when the warning to repent is followed by this amazing invitation to everyone who does repent. The promised portion of the text begins here, and this is verse 20. And it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It truly is an act of grace for Jesus to invite members of the church to renew fellowship with him in which they, they claim to enjoy, but which in reality is, has, is gone. And this is that frequently misquoted text that I mentioned last week and earlier tonight as well, as though the context was one of evangelism, where Jesus stands outside the door of someone's heart and he knocks, asking them to accept him as their personal savior. Well, that's not it. The fact of the matter is that this letter is written to the Christians in the church of Laodicea who need to be reminded of their relationship with Christ that it must be renewed or they'll be facing judgment. This is something that is better said to a congregation that is in danger of abandoning the faith for the world, which there are many that have already done that in today's culture and which there are many who are on the way to doing that in our culture today as well too. And of course it's true if they accept Christ's gracious invitation, Christ will dine with his people, which is most likely a reference to the feasting on the gospel. That we, we, we're nourished by the preached word, by the gospel being preached. They've lacked that nourishment for so long because their nourishment has all been based on their perceived wealth and riches and favor with the community and the world. But Jesus says that's not what's important to him. What's important to him is staying true to the gospel. That's what was neglected. But this invitation must be heeded immediately because Christ is now standing at the door of this church, knocking, waiting for his people to repent and to invite him in to renew their fellowship. And the promise for repenting and taking hold of the Lord's gracious solution is similar to texts that we've already read in these seven different addresses. This time, it's to those who conquer. They'll be sitting with him on his throne as he also conquered sin and death. That which says that he that they will sit with him through conquering and he's already conquered as well and in his conquering he sat down with the father well what did jesus conquer he conquered sin and death but it exists in that already not yet tension because death still needs to finally be, be defeated when jesus comes again at the end of the age whichever which will be whenever he desires it to be and when he did um conquer though there on the cross he, after that he went and sat down with his father on his throne and this is nothing new to us We've spoken about this already before, that Christians actually reign with Christ, even now. Because Christ has victory, and we are in him, we, ha we too have victory, and we have every blessing that he earned as well. We don't deserve to sit on the throne, like he mentions here. We don't even deserve to look at the throne or fall down, castrate before it. Yet, because of what Christ has done for us, we're able to sit with him there. What a glorious gospel. And then our, our passage ends with that normal way saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, showing that belief in the things of God is a work of God. This is what the Spirit says. If you hear, then hear him in your heart as well, not just in your, in your mind. So a couple of points of application here. Number one, the success of a church 
can't be measured by its size, its property, its buildings, or its wealth. It must be measured by its faithfulness to the gospel. While the world sees success in terms of numbers and programs and buildings and bank accounts, such things often breed complacency and compromise. Certainly the church in Laodicea was able to obtain such wealth only by compromising the gospel message it proclaimed so as to make peace with the prosperous unbelievers around them. Only when the church in only that when that happened did the church in Laodicea prosper, according to their own words. But it was a false success, and it led them to their lukewarm, pitiful condition. What Christ asks of us as his people is that we seek not success, but that we seek to be faithful to the gospel which he has entrusted to us. This is how the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy even, um, in Second Timothy three, ten through seventeen. He says, You have, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the temptation is is to depart from the gospel, to blend with the world. But we're instructed here to patiently endure whatever the Lord sovereignly brings before us, even if it's persecution, like the Apostle Paul had, and to simply continue in what we have received, to live a simple, ordinary life, content wherever the Lord has called you, whether you are a child, a teenager, a mother, a father, whatever field of work the Lord calls you to, just be faithful to the gospel in that context. It's the gospel that provides true prosperity, true riches for us. Riches that moth and rust won't destroy. And then secondly, we're compelled here to share the gospel rightly. By grace, we must resist the urge to be pragmatic and think, oh, oh, well, this works, so then let's just do this. Because what we win people with, we win them too. And that's how Laodicea got in trouble. They abandoned the simple and plain preaching of the gospel so they could reach more people and have greater success. And they did that, but it wasn't the kind of success that they hoped for. It was a poison in the congregation. We don't cut off corners of the gospel. We don't modify it to make it more acceptable to people, or to our hearers, more palatable to people in the community. We don't change the holy standard of God because our culture is increasingly wicked and contrary to the gospel. We stick with the good news. The good news that man who was spiritually dead and separated from God because of sin, can be made spiritually alive and reconciled to God through no, no doing of his own, but by the grace, mercy, and love of the Lord God. It is specifically the good news that Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, took on flesh in becoming a man and then lived for his whole life under the law. Yet in every way he was free from sin, free from committing any transgression. Even more, Jesus, bless you, 
<laughs> lived in perfect, active, and passive obedience to all of the precepts and the whole law of God. And in the appointed time, Jesus willingly died on the cross for sinners and rose again on the third day to reconcile them to himself eternally, having in his death and resurrection defeated sin as well as satisfying all of the holy demands of God against, and his wrath against sin. And he's exalted now. And he's reigning and ruling over all creation. And people, individually then, have this reconciliation to God through faith and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And since this faith and salvation is not something obtained by our own power or our own will, we are then also secure and need not ever fear losing it. It's ours through repentance and faith, those things that the Lord grants to us. So we share this gospel rightly because it's God's gospel. And it's not our gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, God, that you would help us to rightly know the gospel and that our confidence would be in that to bring true joy and prosperity. Lord, certainly every one of us here doesn't want to have bad things happen to to us, Lord. None of us, I'm sure, want to be poor or homeless. But Lord, let us not think that true success is in having material gains and wealth, and especially, Lord, let us not sin and let us not compromise the gospel in order to get it. Help us to be people who are content, who are satisfied with what you have given to us and the calling that you have put upon our lives, and help us to do all things in light of your glory and for your glory, and so that we would be fully satisfied in you, God. We do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to meditate upon it and to know you more through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, any questions? Clear anything up? Yeah, Henry? So the part where it says, uh, when you said that white is the color of pureness, hmm? does that mean that God is racist? <laughs> no. But it's funny that you say that. I mean, that is how that is how people in the past justified their racism, right? Because the Bible is very clear that uh, you know, we're humanity, and the color of our skin is a, is a spectrum of people, and that everybody in Christ is one. So God's not racist at all. The gospel goes out to every tribe, nation, and tongue. But texts like that were the justification for people to be racist. They, that's how they would justify it by the Bible, and they were wrong in that. That's called twisting the scriptures. That's what the devil does, right? But, you know, the Bible is very clear that racism is a sin. And God's not a racist. God made humanity in his image. So. How did God make humanity in his image if he's like God has no color himself, doesn't he? We have skin that and melatonin melanin in our in our skin that I think it's melatonin. No, it's not melatonin. Melatonin is what you take when you're sleepy. Yeah. Melanin. Um is on a on a varying scale, you know, depending upon where you are in the on the planet. And so if you're in a place that has a lot of sun and it's really hot, you probably have darker skin because that's better in those conditions. You fair Blonde, almost white color there. You <laughs> look like you would be do good in the snow. 
Because you shouldn't make pictures of Jesus. Because that's a second commandment violation. But yeah, Sabrina. And black is an absence of color. And that's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Anything else? All right, good job, guys.